There is not one of us that comes to Christ and has a will that is fully conformed to God's ways. He has done an almighty work in your heart when he saved you. But for the rest of your life, he will be working on you. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part two and the conclusion of A Faith That Faces Death with Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor Paul's primary text is the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the faith chapter. There are a lot of things that you can do without faith. You can get a job, get married, raise a family, make a lot of money, travel, and even have a lot of friends. However, there's one thing you cannot do without faith, and that's please God. Think back on the past day, the past week, even the past month. How many things did you do without faith in God? You may have liked the past week, but did it please God? Was it worth it? In today's message, Pastor Paul preaches about a life God wants to work in you, one filled with faith in the one who made you and hopefully even saved you. Here's part two of A Faith That Faces Death. Now, Joseph does us proud in Genesis 39 in Potiphar's house. He does us proud, maybe one of his strong moments. But it's not long after that when we see Joseph's testing of his brothers. You remember when the brothers come down to Egypt and Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And the most natural thing to do in that instant is to remove all of his Egyptian clothing and say, guys, it's me. You're going to be okay because I'm in charge here. Don't worry and relax. But he doesn't do that. He tests his brothers. He puts upon them an ordeal which is horrendous. He sends them back and forth and he plants the cup and all of this emotional stress. And we're never told why he does it. There's this huge blank in the narrative. We're not told, why are you doing this to them, Joseph? There's a verse in chapter 41 where Joseph says, God has made me forget the land of my fathers. I think it's one of the lowest points in the narrative. All of the promises that God gave to Abraham, which he passed on to Isaac, which he gave to Jacob. Now resting with this family, these are the generations of Jacob. Here are his offspring. The promises will be carried forward through this line. And Jacob's quite at home in Egypt. And he says, God has made me forget the land of my fathers. And so you see this complex character also has much learning to do. He also needs to learn the lesson to submit to God's ways. His faith needs to grow in the same way that Isaac and Jacob's did. And that leads us to the very last chapter of Genesis. Again, the point at which Hebrew steps in, looks at Joseph and commends him for his faith when at the end of his life. Here we have perhaps one of the most well-known verses in all of Genesis. You meant it for evil 50-20, but God meant it for good. I have learnt that you meant it for evil, but God was at work, whether in the pit or the prison or the palace. God was at work and he meant this for good. 
And then he gives instructions about carrying up his bones out of Egypt back to the land of his fathers. Again, leaning on promises that were given to Abraham all the way back in chapter 15. God said to Abraham, your people will be sojourners in a land that is not their own. And after 400 years, they will come up. And Joseph is leaning on those promises in faith and says, make sure you take my bones up out of this land. At the end of his life, he has learned to submit to God's ways. Now, I'm not saying that this is the point of these narratives in Genesis, that these character transformations are the point of the narrative. But turning back to Hebrews 11, think about how the author to the Hebrews is using this text. He's using these men as an example in this very way. Hebrews would have been received by a people who were so familiar with the Genesis story. They knew about the character transformations. They knew about the fighting of Isaac and the fighting of Jacob and the resistance of Joseph. And they knew that it was on their deathbed that these men finally got it and rested and said, I trust in the Lord. And the author to the Hebrews says, you also need to have a faith that has learned how to submit to God's ways. There is not one of us that comes to Christ and has a will that is fully conformed to God's ways. He has done an almighty work in your heart when he saved you. But for the rest of your life, he will be working on you and conforming your will so that it sits under his and you learn to say, I trust in my Lord. Now, you alone know the particular areas of your life where you struggle with God's providence. And I'm not thinking necessarily about big, significant, life-altering trials that come your way. I know that right now there are people in this room who are going through deep, deep valleys. And I praise God for your response of faith in the midst of that trial. I'm thinking more about the everyday grind that you feel according to God's providence in your life, his particular providence that is unique to you and you alone. You know where you struggle with that providence. I'm thinking about the Lord's providence that you feel at 5 a.m. on a Wednesday morning when you feel the pain of life in a fallen world. And you don't know why the Lord has this for you. I'm talking about the pain, the providence of the Lord that you feel on Monday evenings at 11 p.m. and your work still isn't done. And you don't know why the Lord has ordained this path for you. I'm talking about the ongoing health issues that just won't go away. And you don't know why God has this for you. You don't know why this is his providence for you. And why that is his providence for him. Why does he have it so easy? And the Lord has given me a path that is so hard. Why doesn't he have anything of the struggles I have? Or why can't I have just an ounce of the ease that he enjoys? We are all of us fighters. We are all of us learning Just like Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, a faith that submits to God's ways. 
We are learning how to say this is best. We are learning how to say this is God's very best for me. That is God's best for him. And according to his wisdom, which I don't understand, this is his best for me. How on earth do we learn that lesson? For Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, it would seem it took a lifetime. So how on earth are we to be those that learn that lesson of delighting in and accepting the curious providence of the Lord in our lives in its specific manifestation? That leads us to our second point. These men were those that had learnt a faith that submits to God's ways. They were those who had learnt a faith that looked forward to God's plans. And I think the two are not unrelated. They're not disconnected. I think in large measure, the way in which these men learnt to submit to God's ways was precisely by looking forward to God's plans. Look again at the text in chapter 11 of Hebrews. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Did you notice how each of the characters is commended specifically for their words. As I said, there are other aspects of the narrative that the author could have gone to, deeds, acts of faith, where the characters did well. But in each case, the author of Hebrews goes to the words spoken by Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. We might be more specific and say he goes to words spoken that were looking forward They were future-oriented words that he commends them for as acts of faith. We could be yet more specific and say they were future-oriented words that were, in a sense, the words of God himself. In each case, the commendation comes when the character speaks words that look to the future that are invoking the promises of God that are leaning upon the promises and the plans of God. So Isaac speaks blessings on Jacob and Esau, and those blessings in particular have connotations of the covenant given to Abraham. God said to Abraham, I promise you a land, a seed, and that your family will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And they are the elements exactly that Isaac prays on Jacob. And similarly, when Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, The content of the blessings is the substance of the Abrahamic covenant, particularly the one of them becoming a great people. And then Joseph, making mention of the Exodus, we've already said, is pulling on a promise given to Abraham in chapter 15, where God says, you're going to leave this land. You'll be in a foreign land for 400 years, and then you'll leave. That's where he got the concept of an Exodus from. So in each case, The commendation relates to words spoken that are future-oriented that invoke the promises and the plans of God. And I think in large measure, that became the means by which these men learnt a faith that submits 
Just think with me by way of example about Joseph. Joseph was the most powerful man in the most powerful nation on earth at the point that he spoke these words. Now, it's true, Pharaoh is still in command, but if you really come to terms with the narrative, Pharaoh keeps deferring to Joseph. Joseph is running the show in Egypt. And then, you remember, the Egyptians come to Joseph. The Egyptians come to Joseph and say, we are dying here. We have run out of food if you would just sell us some grain. They enslave themselves to Joseph. They sell him his cattle. They sell him their very selves. Then, by contrast, Joseph's own people come down from Canaan to Egypt. And there, Joseph has the choice of where they settle. He puts them in Goshen, the most prosperous part of the land, and they do just well for themselves. Joseph could not have had it better. He had the best life you could imagine. And yet, on his deathbed, he says, guys, make sure we get out of here. Make sure we leave this situation to go back to Canaan, which was a nothing at the time. What on earth would prompt Joseph to make that their obligation? Let's leave this place. What on earth would be driving him? I can only conclude that it was his faith set upon something far greater than his present circumstances. The three characters were looking forward to the plans of God, and that became the instrument by which they were taught to submit to God's will. Their faith they had learnt simply by casting their vision forward. Now, this needs to be the character of our faith. I trust that the application here is abundantly clear. Don't mishear me. There is another sermon about looking back on God's previous work as a means of incentivizing obedience, inciting present-day obedience. There is another sermon where we can see all the places in the Bible where God's people are taught to look backwards in acts of remembrance upon what the Lord has done in the past and allow that to become the means by which you obey in the present. That's a biblical truth. But here it seems to be radically future-oriented. The author to the Hebrews in chapter 11 is immediately in verse 1 setting the gaze of his readers forward and saying, look forward in order to teach yourself the nature of faith. Allow your faith to grow and to prosper. How? By casting your vision forward. Forward beyond your present circumstances. The difficulty, I think, that we face is that we love so much instant gratification. We love so much being gratified instantly. In fact, I would say that waiting for our reward is a skill that has been in large measure lost today. Did you ever consider the fact that these men never received the thing that they were waiting for? That they were looking forward and they died having never received the thing that they waited for? I was reading just last night the story of the early French Protestants, and in particular, a young girl, 14 years old, 
She was brought before the authorities and she was asked to denounce her faith, to recant. And she refused at 14. And so she was cast into a tower with 30 other women and she was left there for 38 years. There was no promise of a future trial. She was not awaiting a future decision. There was no hint that her circumstances would change. The commentator goes on to to say to sit in a prison room with 30 others, to see the day change into night and summer into autumn, to feel the slow, systematic changes within one's flesh, the drying and the wrinkling of the skin, the loss of muscle tone, the stiffening of the joints, the slow stupefaction of the senses, to feel all this and still persevere seems almost idiotic to a generation which has no capacity to wait and to endure. We must lift our gaze up from the now. We must learn the skill of setting before us habitually a vision of greatness. What is the content of the greatness that our souls must be fixed upon? The reason I read the few verses preceding our text tonight is because the author tells us. He says that they were seeking a homeland, a city that had been prepared for them. We must learn the skill of setting our gaze upon that which is not here in the now. We must learn to set our gaze beyond our present circumstances, to fix our eyes on the homeland, that is the city that has been laid for us. It is a city whose foundations rest upon the blood of the Lamb. The lion of the tribe of Judah died so that you can have a part in the eternal city. You have two zip codes. Did you ever think of this? You have a zip code here on earth and it means nothing. And you have a zip code in the eternal city. Christ is waiting to welcome you in and that means everything. And God has ordained when you will die. God alone knows when you will die and how you will die. You do not know. And we prepare for that day and we nurture a faith that faces death by setting our gaze on the eternal city. And when God says it is time to go there, Christ will welcome you in. Jesus is waiting for you and he will bring you in with joy. And you will look at him face to face and he will lead you to the room that he has prepared for you in the city. And in that day, there will be no fighting in your will. Your faith will be perfected. There will be no resistance to God's plans because Christ will have perfected you when you see him face to face. And you will be in his presence forever. There will be no sin. Think upon it. 
children will play in the street with no fear. There will be no death. There will be no brokenness. The grind that is so prevalent in your life day after day after day, which is God's good providence for you now, will be absent. And the author to the Hebrews would have us learn to set our gaze on this, to look forward to that city and to rejoice in the fact that really soon we will be there. So soon this will be done. And we will be there in the presence of the Savior. And as we learn to lift up our eyes from the now and to cast our vision towards this greatness, so our faith is instructed. It is instructed mightily in the ways of God. Our faith learns to submit to God's good providence in this broken life. This is the example that he would have us learn from these men facing death. Pray with me now to close. Our Father, we do praise you that you've set for us a homeland, an eternal city that is so much greater than anything our minds can conceive of. We praise you that you have given us in your word examples of faith, Tonight, just three men we've considered, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, who resisted so often your will, and and we confess to you that that is our way. It is our way to fight against your providence, to not submit in meekness and humility to your plans for our lives. We seek your forgiveness for the many ways in which we have grumbled and resisted in our hearts your good plan for us. You alone know our struggles. Father, we pray that you would teach us all a faith that submits to your ways, how at least in part, in large measure, it is by looking forward to your plans. And there again, we praise you for what you have stored up for us. Father, we praise you tonight for the gospel of Jesus Christ by which we have been saved, that the death of the Lamb of God on the cross has paid completely for all of our sins. And because he has paid that ransom, we now have a home in glory with Christ. Father, teach us to look forward. Instruct our hearts to look forward to set our gaze upon this vision of greatness that is the eternal city. And in so doing, we understand that our wills will be conformed to your ways. And we rejoice in that. We ask these things. We commit ourselves to you in the precious name of Christ. Amen. You are listening to Timeless Truth Today. It's always been interesting how we decide to trust Jesus for eternal salvation, but still try to hold on to the reins of our lives on the moment-by-moment decisions. Does that really make sense? And by the way, how is trying to control your own life working out? If you'd like to learn more about how to live the life of faith that God has planned for you instead of by your own plans, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. 
timelesstruthtoday.org. Select Broadcasts on the homepage. There you'll find a complete library of teaching resources. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you don't already have a local church family, we invite you to come worship with us, 10.30 a.m. each Sunday. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. And there's always the live stream. You'll find the link on the church website, which is bethanyto.org. Hope you'll join us on Monday as we begin a new series titled, Paul's Gospel and Ours. I'm Matt Williams. Hope you have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.